listening to Generation Net Zero, a podcast created by Leading Change. And I'm your host, Bo Aganaba. Through this podcast, we hope to share the stories of young people leading and supporting climate action in all sectors of the economy and across the climate movement. Leading Change is a national nonprofit with a mission to support young leaders between the ages of 19 and 35 to attain a sustainable, prosperous, and socially just future in a generation. On this episode of Generation Net Zero, Emily and I are joined by Sabrina Guzman Skotsnitsky, who currently works as the International Policy Specialist at Youth Climate Lab and as the Director of Sustainability and Impact Driven Work at Emerging Youth Consultancy. Both Youth Climate Lab and Emerging Youth Consultancy are organizations that are dedicated to mobilizing and empowering young people. Sabrina shares her journey in her sustainability career so far, how she deals with eco-anxiety, and the need to create sustainable opportunities for young people. If you've been following along to this season of Generation Net Zero, then you'll know that each episode showcases climate action in a different way. If this is your first time hearing us, feel free to check out our previous episodes. Each one has some great advice from young leaders who might be in a similar career stage as you. Here's episode five. Why don't we get started? And uh, yeah, we'll start with just kind of a, an introduction from yourself. So why don't you, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and the kind of work you do and how you got involved in it. Yeah, um, thank you for that question. My name is Sabrina. I'm a climate justice advocate, a researcher, and youth consultant here in Vancouver on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. And I have been in the climate movement, environmental movement space since about 14 or 15 years old. I kind of started where a lot of folks start, where you're like concerned about recycling. And like, I volunteered in my local forest removing invasive plants. But around, yeah, 15, I got involved in an organization called Kids for Climate Action. And that's where I started to learn about this term climate justice and what that means and become more involved in, I guess, like direct advocacy. Um, So, you know, we were organizing meeting with meetings with MLAs, trying to get youth voices heard at, you know, various levels of government on different projects that were impacting us, um, such as like the Trans Mountain Pipeline, stuff like that. Um, So that's kind of where everything started. And then that kind of continued in and around school. um, And I was able to start working for environmental nonprofits in my summers uh, through Canada Summer Jobs. A lot of nonprofits, that's the only way they hire youth or are able to hire youth. Um, And I realized that even though my degree was not like science-based, that actually there was a lot of opportunity for a green job without a STEM degree. And so after graduating, um, I was able to do some different research work, including this green jobs report, which I think we'll be getting into later on. Um, And now I work for Youth Climate Lab. Awesome. Sorry. <laughs> I was just on mute there. Um, fantastic. Yeah, Emily, go ahead. Um, thanks, Brina. Um, yeah, you mentioned a bit that you work at Youth Climate Lab now. Um, if you want to speak to a bit about what um, that role is like right now, as well as what an average day of work is like. Uh, yeah, at Youth Climate Lab, I'm the international policy specialist. And basically, I get to do a bunch of different policy projects 
trying to, as we say, like widen the tent um, of more youth who are taking action on climate, because you kind of get the, what we call like the usual suspects and like the same youth showing up to the same events or at the same, um, you know, rallies or talking to MPs. And um, we really want to include youth uh, who maybe don't have access to those resources. Um, often like youth who are the most impacted by climate change often feel like they have the less voice to speak out on these issues. Um, so one of the tasks I get to do is we're creating a digital policy hub to make all of our policy tools accessible uh, to anyone who wants them. And we're also adding on specific tools for specific communities that we know struggle to understand or access different policy structures. So we are working on a Northern infiltration manual. So that's to help Northern youth and especially youth and in indigenous communities to be able to understand how territorial governments work and where they can insert themselves in the climate policy development process. That's awesome. I love that. Um, it kind of goes along with uh, what actually I wanted to follow up with. Um, and I, I saw the last infiltration manual as well, which uh, was so fantastic. It's definitely um, a great resource. Um, and so going along with that, some of the challenges um, that you see on a regular basis uh, and also, what are some of the opportunities um, at removing some of those barriers that young people face um, when they're entering the sustainability sector, whether it's from a personal level of just something that they're interested in or at the career level as well? There are a lot of barriers I find around, I guess, both youth because and then also like specific subsets because youth are not a monolith and youth mm -hmm. have very many different lived experiences. I guess from a youth side, um, you know, we're very passionate, we're very concerned about the climate crisis, obviously, and like what our future looks like, but often like we feel tokenized or we, our labor is not paid for, or we feel pressured to like have our day job and then do this work on the side, um, which can lead to burnout and other issues. And, um, you know, within that there are communities that have like you know, like they have to work a day job in order to survive and they can't necessarily see a way to make make an environment or like what they care about their career. Um, and we know, you know, even as we're transitioning to, well, hopefully transitioning to a low carbon economy, there's like communities up north, especially indigenous communities, fossil fuel communities, where the youth there feel like, am I just going to be left behind? Like what is the future in my community? Will I have to move out and like go to an urban area just to, to find a job? But there's also a lot of opportunities there. Uh, and that's why like, I'm really passionate about making sure youth are included in our just transition uh, work and in what Canada's plans are for a just transition, uh, because um, a lot of youth, as I mentioned, who might not have a green job yet, know a lot about climate change or they maybe have traditional ecological knowledge um, from their indigenous communities um, they have a lot of input to provide um, and so that's what i see is like a huge opportunity um, but yeah some of the challenges i guess more even more specifically around like the green job programs are that they currently are not um, they are not like people who do not have have citizenship or permanent residency are not eligible for most of the programs. So that excludes international students, many and most of which I, in my personal experience are working towards permanent residency. And it also 
these programs can sometimes exclude folks who have um, trouble accessing education uh, because of some education requirements or requirements for the position to be STEM focused, um, which are yeah different issues I see. Thanks, Sabrina. Um, and we uh, you mentioned about earlier, but um, um, also expanding on um, your uh, thought as well, like um, since you published Build Back Better, um, expanding green jobs for youth post pandemic. Um, have you like? Can you speak to a bit about um, how those barriers are being um, addressed, or um, have you seen improvements or um, ways um, that your recommendations have been taken up in the federal youth program? To give uh, some background on that report, um, so that was a research fellowship I had with the Canadian Council for Youth Prosperity, which focuses on youth workforce development, and. I was able to speak with different department agencies and government bodies that deliver these green job programs for young people specifically, and also survey youth and have like conversations with youth around like recommendations to improve them. And one uh, great thing is since I published that report, I've been able to continue those conversations um, through different engagements, being on podcasts. Um, and it's been really great just to hear again from youth, like what supports would most help them uh, on their journey. Um, and I have seen some positive uh, movement uh, towards this. Um, I've seen like two, at least two federal programs now that are specifically for uh, BIPOC um, or indigenous or racialized youth. Um, so that has been a really great thing to see. Uh, one specific recommendation I made was around renewing this one internship program called IMPACT because I thought it was very uh, innovative because the whole um, job role that a youth has to do, uh, the only requirement is that it has to have them working on th uh, three or more sustainable development goals. And so I feel like that is taking a really, uh, I guess, holistic approach to what a green job could look like. And they also were 100% wage subsidies. So they actually enabled some youth-led organizations to hire youth for the first time. Uh, so it was really cool to see that. And that program has been renewed, uh, which was one of my recommendations. So it was very exciting to see. That's great. I mean, I can definitely speak to that personally, uh, you know, as a youth-led environment, environmental organization, we certainly rely on those wage subsidy programs, um, you know, firsthand. So uh, yeah, I'm definitely a big fan of those programs and would love to see more of them. Um, one thing that we've been kind of looking at this season, just because, you know, when you, when you hear the term sustainability, it's so broad, it's so big, it's, it's difficult to, to, difficult to quantify and, um, and sometimes it can be hard to really know what you're talking about when you say that. So, um, circular economy is another idea that does capture a lot of some of the same areas when it comes to trying to address some of the challenges that we face in our current society. So when you hear the term circular economy, what do you think of? For me, circular economy is all about kind of internalizing or like reincorporating all of these things that I guess traditional economics externalizes, like, you know, these environmental harms, but also social harms. And so I know a lot of folks who are in the circular economy space, they focus on, you know, like we're trying to incorporate resources, inputs and outputs, our waste from like our products, um, go back into the like, you know, creation of the next product or something like that. 
But I also like to think of the human circularity aspect, you know, and this idea of like, we're also trying to incorporate the human um, harms that are sometimes caused by our like rush for productivity um, and trying to increase the sustainability of our employees, whether that's like a four day work week or like flexible remote working environment or you know various ways of taking care of our staff and seeing humans as a resource that also needs to be circular as well as the uh, these other environmental you know resources yeah i love that um thinking about yeah i don't know it's i i also try and and think outside the box of what these terms traditionally refer to right so like one of the the uh sort of examples that i like to think about um, which I think goes well with circular economy is is sort of the ecosystem language and, yeah. and what we use around that, right? So if we can kind of introduce some of that biological ecosystem systems thinking um, into the way that we orient our society, I think there's a lot that can be learned there. Thanks, Bo. Um, and uh, you mentioned a bit about um, kind of how ways like um, supporting staff look like, um, as well as I know you're involved with Youth Climate Lab as well as um, other um, youth-focused organizations. Um, can you speak a bit to um, what keeps you inspired and motivated to um, carry out this work with young people as well as um, in the sustainability space? It always comes back to other young people. Like I'm just always inspired by everyone that I work with or just get to come into contact with. And I think, you know, we were talking about how interconnected a lot of the environmental movement feels. And I've definitely found even despite like remote working environment with COVID, like I feel very connected and very supported by the ecosystem, uh, if we want to call it that. And so, um, yeah, I one thing that's been cool is since I've been kind of publicly advocating for green jobs, I have youth who like approach me in their job search, like looking for support. Uh, but when I get to talk with them, like I just gain as much as like, I feel like I'm giving to them because I get to hear about like their passions and often they're doing like a subset of environmental work that's like maybe very technical, something I don't know about. So I get to learn, um, especially folks who are doing like, you know, engineering or maybe they're doing wildlife conservation. And I get to learn about an issue that I never even knew was an issue, but also realize, oh, wait, well, they're working on it. So it's actually there's a lot of stuff happening out there uh, to gain inspiration from. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100% agree with that. I, that's probably um, the aspect of this work that I enjoy most is getting to, to speak with peers and just to hear the, the variety of experiences and passions um, that people have working in this space. And um, kind of going along with that, you know, one of the, I think the biggest challenges uh, in working in sustainability related fields is, you know, how often we get disheartening news or, uh, you know, just the scale of the problem itself can, can feel daunting. So, uh, you know, how do you cope with that? How do you deal with eco-anxiety and eco-grief and these kind of uh, emotions and, and feelings that we have to, uh, sort of face when we're working in this space? It's interesting for me because eco-grief and climate anxiety were words I like heard heard of, but I never really kind of thought applied to me until probably this summer uh, when the wildfires were happening here in BC and then the flooding that happened this fall, they all hit like very, very close to home. And I had weeks of 
you know, just being in a very weird mental state. And it's very interesting for me because I find often doing climate work helps me with those feelings, like it makes me feel empowered, but also it's hard to not be able to escape from the problem, at least in your mind, you know, because you're always talking about climate change. Um, and so there's a few things that I've found that help me kind of, I guess, separate a little bit or just like give myself some mental space from that. Um, I'm a big advocate for art uh, and like, you know, art therapy. Um, so I paint and I've been able to do paintings um, around processing like climate grief specifically, but also just as like a distraction or like a coping mechanism. And when I've shared those painting, it's all, paintings, it's also been inspiring to other uh, people and especially youth. And I'm also now investigating these issues um, to do my master's on it, actually. Uh, so I've just applied to do my master's and I want to actually look at how can art and storytelling help young people cope with these feelings, uh, because I find that it's not just about the art, but it's also just about talking about it. Right. And like having that transparency. And I'm lucky that at Youth Climate Lab, um, where we can be very transparent about how we're feeling. Yeah, I love that. Um, one of our other conversations that we had, we, we talked about art as well and and the role of, uh, you know, media and content at sort of creating different worlds for that which you can mm -hmm. inhabit and, and aspire to, too. So um, certainly I have no painting skill, but um, <laughs> uh, but for me, uh, music is probably that mm -hmm. outlet that I, I use to try and, and get some of those feelings out. So what about you, Emily? Um, I don't know. I've actually I really like this question that we've been asking. Um, so many people have just answered in so many different ways, like mm. with either like ways like individually to cope, but also kind of how we um process like the experience and all the things that's going on and how we um continue like draw from those like those learnings and um those feelings and continue to do this work. Um, but yeah, I think for me it's been less um less of like an artistic output but more just kind of like really framing how I um uh approach these issues as well as kind of day-to-day -day feelings of the work that I do and um making it like last and um make it work long term <laughs> um so you mentioned a bit about how um you're applying to your master's um and kind of exploring the role of art and storytelling um um so how do like what do you see for yourself in the future as well as kind of how do you see uh your current role uh fitting into that uh, i'm very excited to do my master's because one thing that i think had stopped me from doing my master's earlier like i graduated about two years ago um for my undergraduate degree and people a lot of people assumed i would go straight into my master's because i really like research, but I actually had a bit of a struggle kind of figuring out like, does research actually do anything, <laughs> you know, and, and that feeling of like, am I just being like an armchair scholar or whatever they call it and just writing about these issues, but not like having any skin in the game um, around like making solutions. 
But luckily, since I graduated, I got to be involved in a few different projects, including the research I do at Youth Climate Lab, where it is really like making research that's actionable, that's responding to like youth needs of like, we actually want information on this specifically. Um, and it's kind of like what we call participatory action research. Um, so yeah, really trying to make sure that there are outcomes. And if we are, you know, working with the community uh, to do that research, we actually are having some benefit to that community and involving them in what happens afterward. Uh, so that's what's really exciting to me. So I think, you know, going forward, I want to definitely be doing policy advocacy, and I definitely want to have that bridge with research. And I feel like I'm always going to have like a soft spot for youth, even when I'm not a youth anymore. So hopefully continuing like youth empowerment work in some way. Yeah, definitely. Um, I love that. And I feel the same way too. Like uh, when, when I've aged out of this quote unquote youth um, <laughs> <laughs> designation, uh, I hope that I can still stay connected to, to young people because, you know, um, I'm inspired by the energy and enthusiasm that young people have. So I think it's infectious. Um, and really, like you look back across history at some of the major movements, that have really changed society and a lot of them had really young people at right at the forefront so yeah. um definitely very very important and going along with that um you know what are some some personal things that you've learned from from young people uh in the industry so far that uh, maybe their life lessons or or even mantras or um something that you have used to you know help yourself uh, in your own journey that is such a tough question because it feels like a mountain of wisdom I've been able to soak <laughs> up uh, from people. Um, I think one thing that was kind of a turning point was this idea of like youth being the experts on our own lives. So this idea that lived experience is its own expertise. And this is true for people who are not youth, um, you know, and often for people from marginalized backgrounds who've been told, oh, what you have to say and like your lived experience isn't valuable um, by like, let's say academia, Western science, you know, uh, so on and so forth. Um, so realizing that, oh, wait, like actually like, what me and other people have to say that isn't necessarily based on observable fact, but like what we've experienced is real and matters. Um, that has been so foundational. And it's something that I am always like explicit about now in my research of like, if I'm presenting facts, like this survey of like 260 youth for my green jobs report, that is just as valuable as like what these government agencies told me during these interviews. Um, and Along with that, I guess it's just exploring the richness of people's lived experiences through stories. And so again, like every time a young person tells me a story, I'm just like soaking up everything. <laughs> yeah, I um, totally agree. I think um, coming into um, more youth-focused work has definitely um, made me uh, more um, aware of how we um, frame like certain like types of knowledge and um, ways of knowing. And um, that's been really great for me as well. Um, and if maybe like a piece of advice that you might have um, that you've received in um, the past or, um, or from yourself as well um, that you might have for young people uh, who are looking to enter the sustainability space um, as well as like particularly um, young women. 
Well, one thing I think people don't realize, and I kind of was talking about this at the beginning of our conversation, was just that how broad the sustainability sector is, and you can find your niche. And, you know, like often we talk about like finding like, you know, your purpose is like your passion, what you're good at, and like what the world needs basically and i think there's so many different ways you can find that within the sustainability sector uh in particular for women and i think it kind of relates to what i just said but it's this idea of like not compromising on what we want because i think for a lot of people who are like raised um or like socialized as women we're taught to like always put other people first and especially if we care about the environment or social justice, we even more want to put other people and things and causes first. And for example, like I found myself in working environments that were quite toxic, but I stayed because the work itself was really important and I loved the job itself. Um, but then having left that in, for example, being a youth climate lab, which is such an amazing organization, I realized I don't have to like pick, like I can have both. Um, and so that is, I guess, my big advice to especially women who are looking uh, to join the sustainability sector or grow in their career is that you don't need to compromise because if you put yourself first, you are putting your mission first because you're the one driving it and you need to invest in yourself before you can invest into that. Yeah, absolutely. That's um, especially, I think, coming out of that we're not we're not even out of it yet but you know these past two years of of covid i think has really drilled down for a lot of people how important it is to take care of yourself and um you know how unsustainable it is um to constantly be putting your work first or um sort of these other things that are that you see as valuable or as important which they are but you know um one of the things my mama <laughs> always used to say is uh, you know, if you're if you're an empty cup, uh, how are you supposed to help fill up someone else's? Right, pretty common um, saying, but it's 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 so true. There's a reason that these things are cliches. I think so. Um, that's fantastic. I think uh, that comes to the end of of all of our questions. So, how can people uh, get a hold of you? How can people reach you and and find out and follow all the work that you're doing? Yeah, people can reach me on social media. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I have a very long last name, uh, but that means that there's only one of me uh, on the internet, <laughs> um, <laughs> probably in the world, honestly, because um, very yeah, unique name. Um, you can definitely follow Youth Climate Lab. Um, I'm on Instagram. My handle is Sabrina Scottman, uh, S-K-O-T-M-A-N. And I can obviously give you all my handles and stuff um, yeah. as well. Um, and yeah, I'm trying to think what else. Yeah, LinkedIn is where I'm the most active. And um, I currently run a group with my friend Lauren uh, that's like a Youth Green Jobs Network. Uh, we have currently, I think, almost 300 members. And basically, we're just sharing uh, job opportunities and resources. So that's something I always um, invite people to join if they want to uh, have access to those resources. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sabrina. This has been a really fun conversation. And uh, good luck with your master's as well. Uh, I'll be really excited to hear about how that's going and, and to follow up with some of your research and, and the work that you're doing, especially this whole storytelling aspect. It's something that has been on my brain for, for quite a while. And I think it's it's um, a hugely underutilized 
um, what's the word, uh, medium or, or vehicle, I think, for sharing information. So um, really exciting. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode of Generation Net Zero. We had a great time chatting with Sabrina, who we also had the pleasure of meeting in person at the Leading Change Forum this year. As always, you can find us on social media at Leading Change CA everywhere if you want to let us know what you thought. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. Thanks for listening.